Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. More than 40 years ago, an extremely dark chapter of Atlanta history began with the disappearance and murder of two boys. Then came another, and another, and another. On January 6th, 1982... The trial for the man supposedly responsible for the Atlanta child murders began. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. In the middle of 1979, two 14-year-old boys, Edward Hope Smith and Alfred Evans, disappeared just four days apart. On July 28, 1979, both bodies were found in a wooded area. With their disappearance and deaths came an incredibly dark period called the Atlanta Child Murders. Over the course of just two years, beginning with Edward and Alfred, at least 28 black children, adolescents, and adults were abducted and killed all over Atlanta. One by one, each went missing from places like the local swimming pool, the playground, or just riding their bikes, and would be found abandoned in condemned buildings, vacant lots, under bridges, or deep in the woods. Some were never found at all. For years, Black families worried that one trip to the store or to play with friends could end their child's life forever. On September 4th, 14-year-old Milton Harvey disappeared while running to the bank for his mother on his yellow bike. A week later, the bike was found abandoned in a remote area, but Milton himself would not be recovered until November. On October 21st, nine-year-old Yusuf Bell disappeared on his way to buy some snuff for a neighbor. A witness saw the boy get into a blue car and was never seen alive again. 
On November 8th, his body was found at an abandoned elementary school. He was wearing the same outfit he wore when he went missing, had masking tape stuck to his pants, had been hit over the head twice, and was strangled to death. ABC News got a hold of the case after the president read a small story of the disappearance in a local magazine. And in the news coverage, it was revealed that the Atlanta Police Task Force wasn't writing down the victim's details or even following up on all of the leads coming into the hotline. It seemed that the police were not as keen to solve this case as their families and other potential victims were. This would become a continued issue throughout the case. On March 4, 1980, the first female victim disappeared. 12-year-old Angel Lanier left her home around 4 p.m. and was last seen at a friend's house watching TV. Her body was found six days later in a vacant lot with a pair of underwear not belonging to her stuffed in her mouth and an electrical cord tied around her hands. Her cause of death was strangulation. A week later, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis disappeared while running errands for his mother. Months after his disappearance, a young girl came forward saying she saw him get into a blue car with a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man. 11 months after his disappearance, Jeffrey's body was found in the woods. On May 18th, 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks disappeared after answering his home phone and leaving on his bicycle in a hurry. His body was found the next day, next to his bike, near the Georgia Department of Offender Rehabilitation. His pockets were turned inside out, his chest and arms covered in slight stab wounds, and was killed by blunt force trauma to the head. A few weeks before he disappeared, Eric testified against three juveniles in a robbery case. Christopher Richardson, just 12 years old, went missing on June 9th, though his body would not be found until the body of Earl Terrell, who was killed in July of 1980, along with Anthony Carter, were found. Latoya Wilson, just seven years old, was abducted from her parents' apartment by two men on June 22nd, and her body was found in October, But due to skeletonization, no cause of death could be determined. The next day, 10-year-old Aaron White disappeared after getting into a blue Chevrolet near a local grocery store. According to a witness, he was led away by a 6-foot, 180-pound black male in his 30s and put into a blue car, which by now had been seen at multiple abductions. His body was found the next day under a bridge. He had been asphyxiated after suffering from a fall and breaking his neck. From August to December of 1980, five more abductions and deaths occurred. That of Clifford Jones, 13, Darren Glass, 10, Charles Stevens, 12, Aaron Jackson, 9, and Patrick Rogers, 16. With the new year came the murders of Luby Geeter, whose body was found on February 5th, and his friend, Terry Pugh, who also lived in the same apartments as the first victim. An anonymous caller led to the discovery of Terry's body. 11-year-old Patrick Baltazar's body was found on February 13th, 13-year-old Curtis Walker on March 6th, 15-year-old Joseph Bell on April 20th, and 13-year-old Timothy Hill on March 30th of 1981. On March 31st, the body of Eddie Duncan was found in the Chattahoochee River. Now, Eddie's murder was a little bit different. Eddie was the first adult victim of the Atlanta child murders. He was 21 years old, and authorities, who by now had instituted a citywide curfew in hopes of slowing down the murders, theorized that the killer had started attacking young adults because his usual victims were now locked up safe inside of their homes. 
But despite being a different age, Eddie fell within the geographical profile that investigators had created. As did 10-year-old Larry Rogers, 23-year-old Michael McIntosh, 28-year-old John Porter, and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne. On May 12, 1981, FBI agents found the body of 17-year-old William Barrett, who was in a wooded area near his home. Seen driving away from the dump site was a white over blue Cadillac. Nathaniel Carter was the last to die at the hands of the Atlanta child murderer. He was 27 years old and was last seen at the entrance of the Rialto Theater in Atlanta. By the time Nathaniel disappeared, Atlanta investigators and the FBI had been working the case for quite some time. They imposed a curfew, resulting in the parents removing their children from school, and created a profile that they used to try and predict the killer's next move. So by the time Nathaniel disappeared, they had a pretty good idea that the killer would likely dump the next victim into a body of water in order to conceal all of the evidence. So police staked out nearly every bridge and body of water in the area. And on May 22, 1981, detectives got their first major break when one of the men on patrol heard a splashing sound beneath the bridge and another saw a 1970s Chevrolet station wagon speeding off. Two officers were able to stop the vehicle about a half a mile down the road. And inside was a 23-year-old man named Wayne Bertram Williams. Wayne was a music promoter and freelance photographer and said that he was on his way to audition a woman named Cheryl Johnson and that the car belonged to his parents. As police glanced inside, they saw a nylon cord lying in the passenger seat. Two days after Wayne was seen near the scene, the nude body of Nathaniel Carter was found floating downriver from the bridge. On his body were ligature marks that could have matched the cord seen in Wayne's car, though it was never taken into evidence for analysis. With that and a look into his alibi that found no appointment with a Cheryl Johnson, Wayne Williams became the prime suspect. So investigators continued to look at him. They found that he handed out flyers in predominantly black neighborhoods calling for young children to audition for a singing group. And when questioned about the case, Wayne failed his polygraph test. Not only that, but fibers from a carpet in his residence matched the fibers found on two of the victims, as well as some dog hair found to match a pet dog. And a witness came forward stating that he saw Nathaniel just hours before his abduction holding hands with Wayne Williams. Things weren't looking good for Wayne, and after being questioned for 12 hours on June 3rd and 4th, placed him under surveillance and officially arrested him on June 21st, 1981. Wayne Williams was charged with the first-degree murder of Nathaniel Carter and 22-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne. While it seemed likely that he was responsible for Nathaniel's murder, people weren't convinced that he was the same man who killed more than 20 children. Wayne's trial began on January 6, 1982, in front of a jury of nine women and three men, eight of which were black and four of which were white. The trial itself relied heavily on the fiber analysis and circumstantial evidence, and in and of itself contained a number of issues that, today, may have resulted in a mistrial. Regardless, on February 27, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found Wayne Williams guilty of two murders and sentenced him to two consecutive life sentences. Over the years, a number of things have happened with this case and a number of attempts at a retrial have been made. 
In early 2004, Wayne's attorneys argued that the whole case was a cover-up to avoid implicating the KKK and inciting a race war. That they had recordings from a member of the KKK named Charles T. Sanders, and on it, he praises the crimes that took away so many Black children. They also argued that the carpet fiber evidence that was the basis of the whole trial would not stand up in today's courts. Experts like John E. Douglas have also gone on the record stating that it is unlikely that the murders were committed by one person. That if Wayne was responsible for the killings, he was more than likely not responsible for all of them. In 2007, the dog hair was tested once again. And though it could match the dog that Wayne owned at the time, this testing only used mitochondrial DNA, which could not be shown to be unique to one dog. They also retested the human DNA and found that the sequence in the hairs did match Wayne's DNA, but once again, was not exclusive to his DNA makeup. The case is still very much so active and has had announcements as recent as 2019. Wayne Williams, who is still in prison, maintains his innocence, though as many point out, the murders did cease after his arrest. Unfortunately, the case of 22 murdered children still remains unsolved. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on January 7th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.